0: Welcome to the podcast of the Kelly Gutrera Show. It's Tuesday, January 12th. A new survey finds that Canadians are more likely to support decreasing trade with China. Is that even possible? We'll talk with Ian Lee about that. But first, Dr. Suman Chakraborty, infectious disease physician and friend of the show. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on.
1: Thanks so much. Great to be back.
0: Yesterday, Chris said you got to take a look at Suman's uh, Twitter thread. And uh, it's quite a long one. I think it's 19. 19. 19. Um, Tweets that you tweeted out in succession to talk about what's going on and what's at the root of the increasing numbers, in your opinion. Can you just give us the gist of uh, what you said?
1: Yeah, the the long and short of it is I think that um, obviously this is a very complicated situation, and the main just this is very multifactorial. But I find that one issue with the way the messaging has gone, and, and you know, I'm complicit in this too, is that we talk a lot about what we should do as individuals stay home, keep our contacts low. That's still very important, but I think at this part of the outbreak, it, it's a bit of a diminishing returns because people know this. and There's a lot of other factors that are not being considered, so it makes people think that you know, we're here because we all did something wrong. We didn't you know, lock down hard enough. We didn't work hard enough, but that's not the case. There's a lot of other things that are out of our control, and one of the big things that I wanted to talk about today uh, was the idea of occupational exposures of people who work in, um, you know, essential workplaces who can't stay home. And a lot of them, when they get um, infected at work, they can bring it home to a large family and it amplifies and the cycle goes round and round. It's really important to look at that specifically.
0: Okay, Dr. Devilla wants the province to provide 10 days of paid sick leave. I'm guessing you would like the same.
1: I would love that. I mean, what we're seeing in, uh, in these workplaces, many people are going to work feeling slightly ill when they're very contagious, right? And the thing is that um, people are not wanting to miss work because they can lose wages and not pay for essentials. So this is a bit of an incentive to go and get tested. To a targeted testing especially in the workplaces and also a place to support people who need isolation so there are some isolation centers popping up around toronto uh there's a lot of empty hotel rooms that can be used you have a place where you, your food's paid for you can go and isolate away from your family that simple thing has now broken transmission chains
0: okay before we get to the restrictions because i want to ask you about the restrictions because we know the modeling is coming out at 11 30 today and um, what we expect the modeling to show us is that the province is on track to report an average of 6,000 new cases of COVID-19 daily before the end of January, which, you know, I don't really need to get into the big discussion of what this is going to do to our healthcare care system um, with you, because we've talked about that before. Um, but I want to talk about the vaccine situation before we get into the restrictions, uh, th- now, apparently, the, the there are some healthcare systems that have received the vaccine, and they have a goal of 500 doses a day. And we're hearing now that some people within the hospital administration, or people that have been on, uh, you know, at home working from home for months, aren't even going to come in contact with the patient, have been able to jump the line and get their uh, COVID nineteen vaccine. And the reason why is there some loopholes and they haven't you know a lot of hospitals did not get together and prioritize staff the staff that should you know working with the with patients and should get the vaccine first they just put out this email registration for all staff are you shocked you know you work in a hospital setting are you shocked that the administration wasn't on top of this long ago <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, yeah, I, I have heard about this. Uh, to be honest, I, I haven't heard a lot of the details about that, but I do know that, you know, there has been very, very consistent principles about who should be getting vaccinated first, and it's entirely clear from NASI, our advisory committee, that exactly what you say, you know, your highest risk people, including long-term care residents, the people who work there, as well as frontline staff, meaning uh, patient-facing staff, people who would be exposed. Of course, you know, there are administrators that at some point need to be vaccinated, but I agree that there are lower priority. We really need to get this out. And what I will say one thing is that the numbers are scary that we're seeing. But if we have a critical mass of the kind of highest risk people vaccinated first, the numbers are still not good, but they're not going to be as important because now you've blocked um, these uh, um, high risk people from getting admitted and that depressurizes the hospital, which is right now one of our biggest priorities.
0: The premier is going to hold this presser at one o'clock. He'll announce the new public health measures and restrictions on the table, shorter hours for essential businesses. We're hearing possibly uh, 7 a.m. till 8 p.m. What do you think about that, um, Dr. Chakrabarty? Do you think that'll help out at all? Or is that just going to send people um, to businesses and, and, you know, deal with more crowding?
1: Yeah, and, you you know, Exactly. I think that this is like uh, squeezing a balloon. We have to always remember that when we have these large scale types of uh, interventions, there could be unintended consequences. I think that if that's what they're going to do, that's focusing the, um, the uh, uh, response in the wrong place, just like lockdowns curfews, these don't address some of the biggest problems, including the, the uh, uh, workplace issue in essential workplaces. So, you're right. If you end up closing, say, a place at, at 8 o'clock, now you might have crowded lines or at least people trying to get in at 7.30. And you know, a lot of essential workers are working late, so that can actually unintendedly affect them. So, I mm-hmm. think that we just have, we have to really focus on where the problem is. And right now, occupational is one of the biggest roots. I, I do expect to hear something about that. I just want to I'll I'll believe it when I see it.
0: They're also proposing limits on construction activity, allowing only essential construction to continue. Yeah, and again,
1: like, you know, a lot of construction, I mean, there's all sorts of different types of construction, uh, and a lot of construction happens uh, outdoors, so that's fairly low risk. But, you know, if we are seeing a signal, this is something I have to admit that I I haven't actually uh, seen, but if we're seeing a signal there's a lot of indoor construction that's resulting in occupational exposure, Maybe rather than shutting it down, we can do things to try to make it safe first. And the um, uh, that would apply as well, paid sick leave. But I just think that before we shut things down, let's see if there's things we could do to kind of help it, uh, and mitigate the risk, because that will help to uh, break transmission chains.
0: This seems like a no-brainer to me, not permitting employees in offices unless they are determined to be essential. Because uh, most of us can work from home. Now, I know there's a lot of problems With working from home for some people because there's a lot of distractions or the Internet that they have is not at an adequate level, you know, to do everything they have to do. But but thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, especially if you look in certain parts of the the city, let's say Toronto, we see that people who are working from home right now are work, already working from home, I think, and then the people who aren't, there's a very good reason for it, and I think that, uh, yeah, whatever you can do to kind of um, minimize people in an indoor space, it makes sense, but again, we, we should think about exactly what you were saying. There's certain people who just can't work from home. There's certain reasons people might not have a good internet connection. There may be other things, child care, we have to think about as well, right? So there's just this it's a very complex system. I think that a lot of that uh, juice has already been squeezed out of the lemon. I think now, you know, putting these restrictions is getting that last drop out. But I don't really know if uh, that's the best place we should be focusing rather than something that would be higher yield. And I'm sorry, I sound like a broken record. But, you know, occupational um, exposures in essential settings, is I think we really need to focus on.
0: They also are proposing this, and I think this will probably pass because uh, I see a lot of people getting those fire pits, hanging out by the fire pits, further reducing gathering limits outdoors, especially because we know in winter this virus can hang around in the air a lot longer. I know we're outside, but they want to limit them from uh, 10 to 5 people. And where you cannot, you know, have that six foot distance, you should be wearing a mask. It's yeah. be hard to police, but um, would
1: it work? I, th- I think, again, that might make things even worse. Listen, being outside, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I did see that report about um, the virus hanging around in cold air. Now, that may be true from a physics standpoint, but from an infection uh, transmission standpoint, it makes no difference. When you're outside, unless you're in a massive crowd yelling, screaming and singing, the chance of transmission is substantially lower if if they're at all so i think that you know being outside in the wintertime, skating tobogganing, these are things that people are doing to help their mental health and i think that by you know trying to restrict all of this we're just putting an extra burden on people and in the end you might be driving them indoors which is ironically where we know that's where transmission is happening
0: is there a stigma in workplaces that have outbreaks
1: i I would say so, yes. And, and, and that's one of the big things that I also want to make sure that I get across is that while well, I want to be putting focus on occupational areas, it's not because I think someone's doing something wrong. It's just that we have seen that this is an issue and we want to do what we can to help. Mm-hmm. We definitely don't want to point the finger, right? This is not anybody's fault. It's just that it's the way that it's set up and there's certain things that we can do to improve it.
0: We just had Dennis Darby on. He is the president of the Canadian Manufacturers Association, and he had said that maybe uh, we should start rapid testing at uh, all plants and manufacturing, uh, you know, businesses. Do you think that would help?
1: I, I think so. Now, rapid testing, is, it's in its infancy right now, um, you know, in terms of uh, what's effective, how it's going to be interfaced with the public health records. Uh, you know, many of these, when they're positive, uh, they kind of are, they might not pick up every infection, but they can pick you up when you are in your most uh, contagious form. It needs to be validated better by think yes, absolutely. If we have really widely available rapid testing, this could really help um, both at the community home level as well as in workplaces. And I think that some type of monitoring would help, especially now that the uh, amount of COVID is so high across the country. Uh, So, you know, stay tuned for that. I think that this will be something applied even um, when the pandemic starts to get less so we can do things to help people um, uh, stay away from work or congregative settings when they're most uh, contagious.
0: So, do you have a gut feeling on anything that will definitely be announced as far as restrictions go?
1: You know what? I think that um, uh, my gut feeling, unfortunately, is that, uh, you know, some more of these these restrictions that sound like they're going to do something. That, uh, like you said, like the outdoor gatherings, uh, restriction of of uh, work hours, and I just think that the the, the one thing I really want to say is that if the messaging to everybody is, this is happening because people aren't staying home enough, people aren't, you know, you know. Um, trying hard enough then yeah these restrictions make sense to people but if people realize that wait a minute this is not what the problem is we're seeing a lot of other issues that the lockdown doesn't address then people might think twice that maybe this is not the best idea and that's kind of what myself and a couple of my other colleagues Dr. Chagla Dr. Bogach uh, we've been trying to get that message out because yes it's important for us to decrease contacts but we really have to look at other factors that are driving this and right now we're not doing that the best I think that we could be.
0: All right. A new survey suggests that Canadians are four times more likely to support decreasing trade ties with China. Uh, according to a new uh, survey and poll conducted by Nanos Research, Canadian adults um, were asked about Canada's future trade relationship with Canada, uh, sorry, with China, and 45% responded that they believe Canada should decrease trade. Well, just 10% said Canada should increase trade ties with China. Now, we know uh, before the pandemic and before the the Huawei CEO was detained, there were so many uh, incentives to go to China for Canadians. The trips were super cheap. Uh, Trudeau was cozying up to the Chinese government, uh, you know, trying to make some trade deals. I just wonder how connected we are to China now and how hard it would be to break ties when you talk about our economy uh, so we're bringing on to the show our friend of the program, Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. Ian, you've talked about China at length. You've taught in China. Your thoughts here. How connected are we? And I know that Canadians want to move away. At least 45% say we should right. decrease trade. trade. But is that even possible at this point?
2: These are excellent questions. Um, full disclosure, you're absolutely right. I've been teaching in China once a year since 1997. No, I am not paid by the Chinese government. I am not paid by anybody in China. I'm paid by Carleton University because it's our master's MBA program in China. Um, I understand that students pay tuition in China to Carleton University, but that's true of any student in any university anywhere, at least universities that charge tuition fees. So I am and I do not consult to any Chinese company directly or indirectly or a Canadian company or any company that does business in China.
0: I feel Uh, like you're going to bring in sausage fingers somewhere here in this disclaimer.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I just want people to know I've been there a lot and I've uh, traveled around that country a lot, probably more than 99% of Canadians who are not Chinese Canadian or not in the Canadian embassy in China. Um, I have a much more nuanced view. I I have my eyes, I'd like to say, wide open, not eyes wide shut, but eyes wide open. It is not a democracy. It is not a rule of law country. It's an authoritarian country. And human rights are routinely violated. It is also the second largest country economy on the planet Earth. My views are very much like Henry Kissinger the very, very distinguished professor from Harvard who became the Secretary of State to Richard Nixon. And he went up to Nixon in 1970 and said, look, Mr. Nixon, President Nixon, we haven't had any relationship whatsoever, no embassies, no exchange of information with China since the Communist Revolution in 1948. We simply cannot ignore and pretend that the largest population country in the world doesn't exist. You know, you can pretend it doesn't exist and assume it away, but it's still there. And so now to your question, I, I am very aware of the risks of dealing with China. I do not believe that we can deal with China on anything that is sensitive, high-tech, artificial intelligence, 5G, that's just off, as far as I'm concerned, it's off-limits. And the faster Mr. Trudeau declares, Huawei cannot uh, uh, supply our 5G network, the better.
0: Sidetracking, if I could, because why do you think in your, you know, in very uh, quickly, just to sidetrack, because I want to get yeah. back onto it. But why do you think Trudeau's dragging his feet? Is it because of the two Michaels?
2: Um, he has long before the two Michaels, long before he became the, the, uh, the prime minister of Canada. He expressed a strong admiration. You may recall. I think it goes back. I think I have no inside information, but it goes back to his father had very um, people may not remember this at all. Pierre Trudeau backpacked, and I give him full credit for having the guts. In 1960, which was only 12 years after the communist revolution, he backpacked through China for like six months or a year or something. He wrote a famous book um, uh, about it, and he was the, probably the first Westerner of any note to backpack through. And so he developed, and he met Mao Zedong.
0: So it's ended, a, it's a romantic attachment that he has to his I dad's, dad's it, legacy.
2: I think that it's, it's, it's sort of deep in the family, uh, because he, he had a very close relationship with his father, and I'm sure his father taught him many times about his views about China, and, and he was nowhere near as uh, <clears throat> judgmental, to use my word, like I am, about the fact that it's not a democratic country. Trudeau, the father, was okay with that. I think the son is okay, and he still thinks that there's a possibility for a much larger relationship with China. My my nuance is we can do business with China so long as it is, let's call it,
0: low-tech. Right. So we have an addiction to cheap Chinese products and labor.
2: We do. We do. And, and anyone who says they want their stuff at Walmart and Canadian Tire and Loblaws, all that plastic stuff on the shelves, and I'm not trivializing it. I use it all the time, you know, mm-hmm. to put your food, con- your food in your food containers and all the stuff we buy, you know, detergents and uh, cleaning agents and uh, all the, you know, the plastic uh, uh, packaging uh, and so
0: forth. But is it sustainable, though, Ian? Now aren't we opening up our eyes and now aren't we saying, well, is this even sustainable? Like, I don't know if you saw, there was a, I'm not sure which country it was. I think it was, oh, I wish I could remember now. I feel like it was in South America. But there was a country and a photo I saw the other day of this dam. And it's a hydroelectric dam. And they're really concerned about it because of all the plastics that are at the top of the dam floating in the water. The picture is dizzying. And sure. like it's, it's hard I to believe. That. Yeah. yeah. I so, that.
2: And I, I shouldn't have used plastic, because, I mean, that's just an example of... I'm okay. just Let's use a different phrase, then. All the inexpensive goods you buy at Loblaws and Walmart and Home Depot, the stuff that's under, you know, $10, 20 $30, chances are it's made in China. Right. And that doesn't mean we can't. But then ask ourselves, I want to ask, to almost turn the question around, there's 195 countries at the UN. That's the UN data. And about half of them are authoritarian totalitarian countries that are not rule of law that are like china and many are much worse than china so all i'm asking is this are we only going to do business with democratic countries basically western europe and and united uh, the united states and japan and south korea there's about 35 countries in the world that are really, uh, the OECD countries, that are really like us. Are okay. we going to get down that road? I don't think we need to. I mean, countries don't, uh, we don't... You think it's share shortsighted? Views ...of Pakistan. We don't share the views of Saudi Arabia. We don't share the views of Russia. We don't share the views I can go on through. Many, many countries that I have visited that are, uh, and I'm not trying to get into a moral relativistic argument saying, well, China's not that bad. I'm saying we can, I think, trade stuff that is not sensitive, and I'm talking wheat and barley and, and, and bacon and But eggs. don't we,
0: and, and, and that said, don't we have to?
2: I think we do uh, because, you know, when you look at our trade figures, they're down. Um, we have a gargantuan deficit. Um, our productivity is down. David Dodge gave a speech only about a month ago showing our productivity is just barely above zero, and productivity is the only pr- thing that can produce a long term increase in your standard of living in any country. And we, the, the future is not looking good. And I'm not nothing, nothing to do with COVID. Aging mm-hmm. population where we're, we're going to double double the percentage of people over 65, and they're very expensive in terms of health care. I'm one of them, by the way, Um, you know, because older people use a lot more You don't sound
0: a day over 55, Ian.
2: (laughs) <laughs> thank you and and so my point is we've got to generate growth otherwise the tax bill that's going to fall on you younger people is going to be just truly unsustainable and so i'm not saying let's embrace china i'm not saying let's hug china let's uh, what i'm saying is i am hoping that biden will drop the charges or request for the extradition to, uh, to Ms. Meng, and that, that will get that irritant out of the way. And then we I wish one of the politicians, any of them, would just simply say, look, we can't ignore the second largest economy on planet Earth, $15 trillion, but we're not going to deal with them on anything sensitive. So okay, that let means me- that all tech, all defense technologies, all high tech. Okay. And, but we can still ship agriculture and timber and oil and natural gas.
0: Can I just flip it on its head here? Does our trade with China and other dictatorships. Does it, because you've been in China, positively influence these countries in the way that, you know, our Canadian values might rub off on them? Or is that just a pipe dream?
2: You know, you've asked a very, very intelligent and very strategic, I'm not trying to flatter you, question because this has been debated. I'm
0: not telling you to stop, Ian.
2: Okay. (laughs) This has been debated, I assure you, for my, my entire adult life in academia and in the business world. I am of the view... And I can't prove it to you by any study or any set of data that over a long period of time as the population, the authoritarian, anti, you know, totalitarian population becomes more educated, their standard of living goes up through trade, because trade does raise the standard of living, that over time the population becomes more educated, and more educated people are more demanding of their leaders. So it's not that trading with them per se makes them, quote, democratic overnight, it's that it helps them raise their standard of living. That leads to increased levels of education, increased levels of education lead to more demanding publics even if it's not democratic. And you're seeing that with protest movements in China, that they've got a big problems down the road. I keep saying, anyone who says China's the future doesn't understand the problems China is facing. They have an increasingly restive population that's upset and they have one of the fastest aging, people don't realize this, they have one of the fastest aging populations in the world because they had one China policy for 30, 40 years, and they have almost no immigration. And the U.N. is predicting, projecting that they're going to shrink in absolute numbers by 300 million or more. India is going to surpass them, and China is going to drop down into the seven eight 800 million from 1.3 billion, and this is over the next 30 years. So, And then they've got this uh, increasing population that's more and more affluent than the urban in the big cities, they're my students, some of them, and they're, more, they're very sophisticated, very knowledgeable, and guess what, they're more and more demanding of the government, and I think Xi doesn't even realize, he's sort of like a Brezhnev from the Soviet Union. He's yesterday's old guard, but he doesn't realize it, because of course he's surrounded by all kinds of yes men and yes women who tell him how wonderful he is, but he is not the, going to be the agent of change, he's not going to be the Gorbachev of China, and, and that's a very rigid system. It's very rigid, like any command and control centralized model. That's why I'm far more optimistic about the states. And listeners may say, are you crazy? Have you heard of Donald Trump? Donald Trump's going to be out of office in four days. He'll be gone, and six months or a year from now, we'll forget him. The U.S. is vastly more resilient than China.
0: I need to ask you. I'm almost at the end of our time. Uh, You know, we got 60 seconds here, but a poll suggests that 81% of uh, Canadians believe that we're still in a recession, and we're socking away money. Uh, any alarm bells going off here? Because, you know, it seems that says uh, more than half, 54%, say they're holding their own financially. 20% actually say they're getting ahead during this pandemic. 22% said they are losing ground. So consumer spending down, we're kind of saving for a rainy day. And apparently we think this might go on.
2: Uh, It may go on. It really depends on how fast we roll out the vaccine, number one. Number two, I do not, absolutely do not believe we're in a recession. Uh, GDP growth, we had two months of hell. Let's use really good language. We went through, and I'm talking March, April, where we just fell off the cliff. Sort of everybody else. And then we came back very, very sharply. And right now, we went from 2% savings. I'm talking us, we the people. I'm not talking companies. Okay, we went to 27%. There are several hundred billion Billion dollars sitting in bank accounts pent up. I'm one of them because I can't go out. Nobody else, we, many of us are not going out. We're honoring the lockdown or the mm-hmm. suggestion to stay home. That money is going to explode in spending in 2021. The moment people feel safe, and that means the moment the virus, excuse me, the vaccine is rolled out. So the faster we get that vaccine rolled out to the majority, the vast majority of the population, you're going to see an explosion of spending. So I am very much a minoritarian on that poll. I do not believe we're in recession. Yes, some people are hurting very badly. Those, Those industries, small business for sure, and the airlines and hospitality industry. But large numbers of us, let me remind everybody, I'm not supposed to say this, but we did not lose our jobs. Professors didn't get their pay cut or get laid off. Neither did teachers. Neither did the public service of the government of Canada, all 500,000 of them. Neither did any of the provincial or municipal public servants or transit workers. The private sector took the brunt, and everybody.
0: Now that that that's said, uh, and I wasn't going to ask you this, but I, I might as well, because I've got you on the line, Ian. We're looking at a possibility of uh, further restrictions today at one o'clock coming down and they might fall on the shoulders of manufacturers big mistake
2: I do believe it is I believe that there are things that we can do this is not based on scientific evidence and the public health admin- minister in Quebec admitted this uh, probably accidentally in the globe today said there's actually no support no evidence no scientific evidence for for a curfew and and by, by extension by for the lockdowns I think we're in the realm of political, theater because the politicians want to be seen to be, quote, doing something because doctors and public health are criticizing them in the paper saying, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. And so what they're doing, and forgive me for being so cynical, but we're in the realm of COVID kabuki theater. It is not based on evidence. And I mean by that, you know, they're talking about locking down one, two sets of aisles or 10 sets of aisles in the big box stores as if I walk down that aisle and I'm going to get COVID, but I walk down another aisle in the same store, I'm just fine.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure to have you along. Have a good day.